We may not have a physical country, but if we still have our tradition, the language, the culture, the knowledge, the wisdom, we still have our oral texts, our oral Bibles, and these cultures and ceremony and rituals. When we are alive, we don't have a country, but when we die, our souls will still be able to return home to our homeland, to our ancestors. This is In Good Faith, where it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Welcome to In Good Faith. Today we're talking about migration, but I think the thread that runs through both of our guests today are ways of making a home. And we're going to tell you more about what that means. With me today is senior producer Heather Bigley. Hello. And student producer Emma Engebretson. Hi. I just want to say this first interview to me is really gripping and important. Heather, why this book? We're talking with Daniel Grudy uh, today, and he has a book called A Theology of Migration. And here in the U.S., we have lots of issues with migration, right? No matter where you are on the spectrum of of migration, y- you recognize there are problems that need to be solved. And I wanted to talk to somebody who'd thought about it so much that it was impacting the way they interpreted the scriptures, or perhaps the other way of saying that is their their Christian identity was impacting the way they understood migration. So I read this book full of stories that are heartbreaking and some of them absolutely glorious. Uh, we tend to focus on the heartbreaking ones <laughs> in the interview. So he is a Catholic priest at Notre Dame. And there are just a few images in this that I just cannot get out of my mind. And one is he's going to tell about a mass that takes place on both sides of a border. Yeah. Really beautiful to me. Obviously, he's talking about migration specifically, but there are other areas in people's lives where it really might feel like God isn't present or visible or felt. He mentioned human trafficking. So just this idea that there are godless spaces, but they don't need to be godless. Like it doesn't end there, and you can find God in that space. So— now we'll hear from Daniel Grudy, and one of the first questions I asked him was, why why migration? Why refugees? Well, this book and this topic found me more than I found it. And I, in many ways, came out of my own life and ministry working with migrants and then trying to ask the question of how do we think about God from this context? And who am I before God and in relationship with people who are crossing borders and entering the United States? So I approached this as a Christian and as a person trying to understand really how we really try to figure out where God is in the midst of a very complex and challenging social reality. Something that I've actually heard people talk about recently is that if you look at the language of the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament, this word stranger could also be translated as migrant or foreigner or refugee. And so you're engaged in that same work of asking us to reimagine these stories or reframing these stories as stories about about migrants. So is there a, one of these stories that stands out to you or is that especially poignant for you as you think about it from the scriptures? There, there are many stories. And the story of the people of God is really a story about migration. And it's a story that continues into our own day. So how can the stories of migrants today give us a way of reading the stories of the scriptures? But how can the stories of the scriptures of people migrating give us a new way of interpreting those who are migrating today? So there there were many stories about migrants that touched me. And I think I tried to weave those through the book in different ways. And I was writing the Old Testament, New Testament story that I tried to weave those into maybe how these can begin to speak to each other. But it was those stories, I think, that always stayed with me. And uh, there were many. I mean, it seems obvious when you talk about the Good Samaritan and the story of the Good Samaritan, that's such an important story. And I was just moved by this idea that this is someone we could help. And do we protect ourselves from having to help them by telling ourselves our own story? Oh, I'm too busy. I'm too important. I'm too, I'm afraid. And I just found that a really moving part. I think one of the things that intrigued me, like it's a story I've heard many times. So, but as I looked at it in light of this text, you have Jesus is telling a story about a man wounded on the side of the road, if you will, a migrant. And then he uses three people that have a response to this person. 
a, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. So we know that they say Jews hated the Samaritans. So he's really working on right. inverting a worldview here. So he doesn't say some pious, holy Jew, Jewish person helped this person, which you'd expect. So it's the priest and the Levite actually go on the other side of the road. But as you go deeper into that, they did it because the law said if they touch them or come near them, maybe their shadow gets close to them, that they become ritually defiled. And therefore, they're unfit for worship. They're unfit for temple duties, whatever it would be. And so they actually did the wrong thing for the right reasons, the religious reasons, and how even religion can be used as a justification for inaction. And so to me, that's where it became very challenging. Yet the Samaritan apparently did was in the wrong, actually did the right thing. So you're in this kind of situation where those who actually are religious do the wrong thing, and those who are not apparently religious do the right thing. So it really says that we have to go beyond our religious veneer to ask me look at what is the substance of authentic religion and how does that express itself in caring for those who are most vulnerable. I think that's the heart of the question. You talk about Jesus as a migrant. What does that help us know about God? What does that help us know about ourselves? Primarily, I was interested in this Christian as a priest, as a theologian, trying to say, how do we think about this from a faith perspective? And I originally got this initial insight from Karl Barth, famous Protestant theologian, who talked about the way of God into the far country. And I used that as a metaphor. I built on that metaphor to say that in God becoming human in Jesus, he essentially left his homeland and then migrated into our broken and sinful territory. And there kind of laid down his life on a cross so that he could migrate back home and bring us with him. So in that sense, the whole metaphor of migration um, became a very rich spiritual metaphor. Thomas Aquinas said this as well, that the journey from God and return to God is the long arc of our vision of God and vision of being human. And in this sense, if we see theology or God and faith in migratory terms, it actually changes the way we think about this issue of migration. And therefore it's not just about us and them, it's about all of us. And it's also about God. I think one of the things about migration that's so fascinating is when you're in the country that people are migrating to, you take this attitude of superiority, right? Um, because I'm safe and secure. I am somehow better than these other people. But as I was reading your book, I kept thinking, what would happen to me like mentally? What would happen to me physically if I too had to go through one of these journeys? Who would I be? In your relationship with folks who are migrants, what have you learned from them or what have you realized? That really learning from people who have gone through these arduous journeys, I think the question that perplexed me was how do people think about God from what is seemingly the most godless of contexts, really devoid of life? Like Rwanda, I mean, they had killed a million people in 100 days. This was an experience where a couple who had actually taken refuge in what is popularly known as Hotel Rwanda by the name of the movie. And they had taken refuge in this hotel. And they asked us to work with them on the search for God from the context of genocide. And it was a terrifically challenging project. I knew right away that when they asked me to work with them on that, I said, absolutely. But the second thing I said is, I have no idea how to think about God from this context. But I said, I'd love to work with you as, as you went through this context and you try to really ask where was God in the midst of all these challenges. So I find that being able to accompany people as they speak about God from challenging contexts like migration was one of the most illuminating pieces. It's easy to think about God from prosperous contexts. It's much harder to do that from very difficult contexts. And yet that's closer to really, I think, the biblical narrative, how we think about God from these seemingly godless spaces. That's just a mind-blowing idea. How do we think about God from the position of genocide? And is there something that you can share with us that came out of that? How do people find hope in the midst of hopeless situations? How do they find the capacity to believe in the midst of the unbelievable? That's been a core thread that's gone to my work, whether it be migrants, refugees, or trafficked persons. All of this played a role. It's actually building out of their narratives. So a lot of it was listening to stories at different borders around the world then unpacking those stories and trying to say, what do we make of these? And then is God present in these uh, spaces? So I think I eventually became intrigued by how there is a connection between what's happening inside churches or synagogues, religious spaces, worship, and what's happening outside of them. And I think looking at this relationship between how we worship 
and what's happening with migration began to speak to each other. So eventually, those were things that started informing my thinking. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about one border, one body, about this Dia de los Muertos liturgy um, that's happening in El Paso. Actually, it happens each year during the Feast of All Saints and All Souls. And this was more than 20 years ago. I remember going to this Mass along the U.S.-Mexico border, and half the community was in Mexico, half the community was in the United States, and we joined the altar together at the fence. And then the communities from both sides of the border celebrated one Mass. The experience of that Mass led me to the question of what is this relationship between what's happening inside churches or maybe more in a more pointed way, what is the connection between our unity, which we celebrate in the Eucharist as being one body, and our divisions of how this issue really splits nations, cultures, families in ways that are very divisive. In a way, we see all of Christian theology as a way of God's desire to reconcile us, to bring us back to unity. We don't often question our national allegiance. We we don't often need to. And yet here was a place where we were seeing God's work, right? God's work is so much more important on a human level, on an intimate level, than perhaps the work of the nation state that's happening right now. Maybe we need one to help heal the other. One thing is if we look at the scriptures, one of the things that it brings out is that the real vulnerability for Israel and for all people of faith is not atheism, not not belief. The real danger is always idolatry, which is making false gods. It can be from money, it can be from pleasure, but it can also become from a nation state. So it's not if we believe in God or not, it's what God we believe in. And to make a God out of our nation or any nation is not to ground ourselves in the most deepest transcendent realities. Now, that may be fairly obvious on some level, but operatively, it works itself out. So that if my end game is protecting everything that I have as an American, that it's not a strong enough theology to hold reality. That there's a need for an understanding of who I am before God that can take pride in being an American or being Catholic or being whatever race or nationality we come from. But there's something that also transcends that. And I think that if the kingdom of God is really the deepest demand upon us, not just my national identity, that's going to make a different set of claims on me, which are much more radical, much more inclusive. And I think much more demanding than I think some of the other ways that we put our creeds together. When you introduce Lampedusa, you mentioned in 2009, 2011, and 2013, ships breaking apart and the people on the ships who are migrants are in incredible danger. You have this image from a father, Stefan, who talks about bodies washing up on the beach for weeks, which is just heartrending. So the experience you talk about was, I first became aware of it through something that happened with Pope Francis. So he was elected as Pope in 2013. And shortly after he was elected, he had heard a story about a group of refugees that had left the North African shore during the Arab Spring. And as they were traveling across the ocean now, some of these boats, very rickety boats, but they can pack as many as 700 people or more into these boats. So amidst the boat like this, boat capsized and only eight people survived. So everybody else drowned in that boat. And they they survived by clinging to a fishing net in the middle of the ocean. And when the fishermen to whom these nets belonged saw these migrants, instead of saving them, they actually severed their nets and cast them to die into the ocean depths. And so Pope Francis was so moved by the indifference to the lives of these people that he went down to this island. You can imagine, there was very little preparation. And they just said, the Pope's coming down within eight days. And that this was his first visit. This is the first statement. And I would say this is probably microcosm of his vision of the church and of his papacy, was that he went to the margins, where the most insignificant place, you can imagine Lampedusa, nobody knows about. It's a rock in the middle of the ocean. It's only six square miles. There he goes to those who are considered nobodies, because a lot of these folks die and nobody even knows about it. But he actually wants to bring attention to the fact that they are somebody. But even to take that further, he celebrates a Eucharist, but he uses a chalice made from the driftwood of a refugee boat. What is the meaning of that chalice? That, that became my, my, my own question in my research was, what does it mean to use a chalice 
at the Mass, at the Liturgy, at the Eucharist, at the Lord's Supper? What does it mean to use a chalice made from the driftwood of a refugee boat? And that led me to reflect on that and, and to really ask the question, what is the relationship between these bodies who are considered nobodies in society by the eyes of the world, but yet they're actually connected to the body of Christ? And then so I was unpacking that. So that to me was where I came to see Christ as coming to this world as a migrant, but then in the liturgy, which is like a borderlands between heaven and earth, to transform us so that we can migrate back to our homeland. But in such a way that we not only receive the real presence of Christ, Catholics believe in the Eucharist, but we make the presence of these nobodies real in such a way that they become somebody. So not only do we see them, but we recognize that underneath these spaces that they are human beings created in the image and likeness of God. And the way God sees the world is very different than the way we see the world or the way the world sees migrants. And I think bringing that dignity to the forefront and seeing that this is how God sees the world, I think that was all part and parcel of what Pope Francis was trying to communicate. And I think what this mass in Lampedusa was trying to reveal. I'm trying to imagine being that place and hearing that the Pope is coming <laughs> and, and, and also why he's coming, you know, that he's coming because we failed in some way and he's calling us to repentance, right? Like, but at the same time, I think, well, we all need that. And I feel especially on this issue when it's so easy to dismiss people as people. I just wonder, how has God surprised you in this work? You've decided to devote your energy to this. What's happened that you might not have expected 20 years ago? What have you learned from it? At the heart of it, I'm surprised how much God loves us. The way God enters into our vulnerability and in these spaces of, of real challenges. As you ask me these questions, I'm mindful just of some stories that keep coming up. And I remember I was once in Bulgaria at a refugee camp. And these were folks who fled from Syria, most of them, or Iraq. And I remember I was not wearing a collar. I was just in plain clothes. And this guy comes up to me out of the blue, just in the first thing he said to me, he said, I'm a Christian. And so that was the way he started the conversation. And it was so bald and sincere. He says, I actually had come from Syria. He said, ISIS had come to me and they said, are you Christian? And he said, yes. And he said, they said, why are you a Christian? And he says, I'm a Christian because I'm tired of the violence. I'm tired of the hatred. He says, I want peace. And he says, only Christ can give me peace. And so he said he left that day and he came back later in the evening. And he said ISIS had come to his house and killed everybody in his house. His mother, his father, and all his brothers and sisters. And then he looked at me and says, I'm alone now. And that, I felt like I was meeting the early church. I wasn't expecting to meet like the early persecuted church in my own time. But then he walks around and again, it was just so sincere. He says, this is Joseph, this is Mary. These are two of my Christian friends who also fled. And so their whole faith and everything taken away was defined by, I think mean, at its core, by who they were before God. And it was, so, I was always surprised by the pain that I encountered with them. But I was also very clear that, that was not where it ended and where I found a life, a sincerity, a connection, generosity, a service, a vision, a hope. The surprise to me was seeing how the crucified Christ is still alive in those who are suffering today. And that strengthened my faith. And that I think that also gave me great hope, but it also gave me a way of understanding that same truth in the scriptures that we read on Sundays is being is unfolding before us in the same way today, and we just need eyes to see it. So those were surprises, but I think there was a connection in the heart. Um, sometimes it surprised me how cruel people could be, especially when it gets issues like human trafficking, but other times how generous and hospitable people could do. I was always intrigued. I think what also surprised me is how this issue triggers so much in people. And sometimes it could bring out such visceral hatred as well. And I have to say that, that one has long intrigued me because you wonder what's really at stake here and why does this issue trigger so much? And it's one I continue to ponder. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to In Good Faith. As I read your book, the thought kept coming to me, am I a follower of Jesus? And what does that mean? And what can I be doing? My last question here is about a passage of scripture that you return to that strengthens you. Because I, all I could think is how, how weighty this work is, right? And you just talked about being surprised at how cruel people could be. So I'm just wondering, is there something that you go back to that strengthens you so that you can dive back into the work? One was to notice how cruel people can be, but the other side of that would be how merciful and beautiful God is. And I think that there is a translation of the scriptures, the Gospel of John, that really struck me. Eugene Peterson translated the message, so more of a contemporary translation of that. But he has one from John, from the beginning of the prologue of the Gospel of John, where he said, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. (laughs) Um, And it's a beautiful way of speaking about the incarnation because it really is saying that he actually migrated into a world and really entered in. Some people accepted him and welcomed him. As a migrant, others didn't. And the, and the other, probably one of the more original pieces, and it's just an inspired moment, was to see that when Mary said yes in the in the call, that Jesus really was an illegal alien because he was illegal because he was born out of wedlock. And he was an alien because he really was from another world. But then I asked the question, why would God choose to save the world through effectively what wasn't an, who was an illegal alien? And, and is that not the beginning of the good news um, in the sense that God would actually save those all outside the law to save all those who are sinners because of law? So there, these are passages that, that kind of really speak to me. But the other was how Paul is also working out this restlessness of saying he knows he's a sinner and he can't deal with this sort of very difficult reality that he's not justified before God. And in some sense, he has broken the law and is effectively an illegal alien because he's illegal because he's transgressed against the law and he's an alien because he is separated from God. So how does he ultimately find salvation from that except through someone who became illegal for our sake so that we can actually become reconciled to God and then migrate back to our homeland? So these are the passages, I think, in the research and the writing that that occurred to me. But underneath all of it is a passage that comes to me is that from also from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, where he says, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. And I think that I'm constantly drawn back to God's mercy. You know, Pope Francis is always talking about God's mercy. And it's God's mercy that is at work even when the world is destroying itself. So to me, that's what strengthens me in this, is try and stay tuned to that mercy of God into what can often be a merciless world. That was Reverend Daniel Grudy, who is the author of A Theology of Migration. I was so struck, Heather, listening to this interview. He several times said that migrants are often thought of as nobody. And it just hit me, nobody is nobody. Like, we talk about people as if they actually are invisible. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. How right? do we That's stop doing with that? Me. My husband's family came from Korea when he was a baby, and as an Asian immigrant, he often feels invisible, right? Mm. There's there's not a place in this country for him. People come up to him and ask him, where is he really from? Or they'll say, you speak English really well. Uh. Or, you know, these things that make him feel like he doesn't belong here, even though he he does belong here. He's lived here for over 50 years, you know? Um, And so witnessing that, being next to him and reading this book and then talking to Reverend Grudy, I was just really struck with, I I sometimes feel like I'm doing something, but I don't know that I'm actually doing enough. And what is it more that I could be doing um, to recognize that these are people, that these are the body of Christ, as um, Reverend Grudy said, that that really struck me. I feel like one place we can start and one place that Dan Grudy is asking us to start is maybe by just recognizing that we all are, you know, migrants in a certain sense. And so sort of having a humility that we're all in this together, but some of us might not feel like we belong in in various ways. And so just trying to be more aware of that, I think, is a great place to start. And his idea that Jesus comes to earth as a migrant from heaven yeah. to this this place where 
it's not the native place for right. for who he is. And I love the translation from the message from the book of John when he said, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Yeah. So if you don't know the message, uh, is it the 70s, 1970s, when the message was translated? And it's translated into slang. It's basically... Yeah. Wow. Um, Colloquial English. Colloquial English. And growing up, people were always like, oh, don't bother with that. But hearing the way that's translated, it just pierced my heart. And the fact that sometimes religion can be used for inaction. Yeah. So, yeah, I want to listen again because there is just so much to unpack from what he shared. I, I have six more quotes here, but we got to move on. So as far as, as creating a home, next we hear from someone from the Hmong people. And uh, this is Yang Veng, and he caught our attention be- because he is an, a shaman of the traditional indigenous spirituality of the Hmong people here at Brigham Young University, <laughs> getting his master's in anthropology. And I'm thinking, so do you fake one and then really believe the other? Or how do these two things balance? For him, it's all one. Right. And I will have to say that the entire earth and souls and everything seems to be all one in this conversation. Yes. So he has these two different frameworks, and he could reject one or take the other, but he blends those frameworks, right? Um and I love how he talks about how to create a home even if you have no country. Right. And that to me was incredibly touching. I also liked how he just talked about the physical and the spiritual being connected and just how as a shaman he addresses maybe certain spiritual issues. But he asks that, you know, the people he's helping go see physical, you know, professionals and practitioners. So just the idea that... There are different areas um, of expertise, but they're not totally independent of each other. And so sort of the healing of a person isn't only one layer. Yes, yes. I love that. So Yang Vang is a ritual expert. He's got 20 years of professional experience teaching and training students in the Hmong language and cultural practices. And he did just graduate with a master's in anthropology. I remember hearing the first time they chose the... Dalai Lama. They were looking for the reincarnation of the previous one. And when they met the child, they had certain questions. And this child knew certain things that let them know this was who to pick. Yeah, It's a similar thing. When he's just like four or five years old, well, that's my first question is, how did he get picked from the crowd at a young age to become a shaman? So a, a shaman is just a, it's a spiritual healer who help on the spiritual side of whoever need help. And if they're sick on the spiritual side, then they will seek a shaman for help. So back in the old days, there's no Western practice, uh, a medical doctor, none of those. So you either go seek a shaman or there's among herbalists who helped you in the physical side. Was it another shaman who chose you and decided to train you? How did that happen? Yes. When I was four, according to my parents mm. and my older brother and sister-in-law, they say I grew up and I would start talking. For a normal kid, four or five years old, you're not supposed to know those ritual language because in terms of speaking language and the Hmong language, there's the vernacular level, there's the mature level, a speaking, and then there's the ritual language. So when I was young, I learned stuff easy. I observe, I then it's just, they thought that I was just like, I don't want to say crazy. It's like, <laughs> how is a little kids, like four or five-year-old kids, want to do all this shamanic stuff, want to learn all this rituals and customs. Did you have your regular schooling and then also this? Or how did it work? So most of the monks that came to the U.S. is result of the Vietnam War. It's also known as a secret war. Because during the Vietnam War, half the Hmong are sided with the CIA. And then after the war, the country falls, and then they have nowhere to go. My family and and most of the Hmong family became refugees in Thailand and then start to settle into the state in the late 70s until 2004. I was born a refugee kid in the 80s, and there's no school. Uh-huh. I ke- we came here in the end of 96, so I was about 11 years old. 
And before that, I, I never have any formal education. My life here begins in Appleton, Wisconsin, and my schedule to do shamanic work will be the weekends. So I'll be called to do shamanic work every week. So from no school in the refugee camp, you've got your bachelor's and now a master's in anthropology. You've definitely made up for lost time education-wise. Yes, I would say that I'm proud of that. <laughs> so can you give me a little bit of a background about the spiritual practices and the spiritual understanding of the world from the Hmong people? There's a lot of misconception. The biggest um, conception was that Hmong people are like mountain people. They are like nomadic people, right? Uh, like no, no language, no culture. But if you know the Hmong and you study the language and the cultures, and this is my opinion as a practitioner, as a researcher, uh, I think Hmong people have one of the most complex in terms of language and cultures and rituals and ceremony in the world from birth to death. According to all the oral legends and then folk tales. Hmong used to have an emperor. Hmong used to have a country. Hmong used to have a system. Hmong used to have a civilizations. Or else, if we're just like nomadic people, we're just like mountain people, what people think we are, how come the language is so complex? The custom, the tradition are so complex, similar to people that have country and government system. Does the word Hmong have a meaning? Yes. Western scholar wrote about the word Hmong mean free, but it's not. As a practitioner, the word Hmong mean fortune or luck. Because the legend is talking about history, knowledge, wisdom, way of life, and how they understand the world. And the oral history says that Hmong lose their country to the Chinese, and the Chinese execute all the Hmong philosophers, they burn the, all the writing system. At the end of the day, there's only three Hmong men left. And that's where we have the term Hmong is like fortune. Pei Hmong, like the three lucky ones. Wow. So those three lucky ones are the ones who unite and form so the Hmong lineage and their culture don't go extinct. So it's amazing how much has survived in this oral tradition that you've got in your head. Yes. I am right now the foremost cultural expert, not just in the United States, but in the world. In terms of understanding the language and the cultures. You're the perfect one to be speaking with today. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how people who live in the Hmong tradition view the creation or the earth. The way Hmong understand the world is very similar to people that have documented history. One of the most amazing is the Hmong oral text talking about we used to be monkeys apes. They're talking about this world was formed. You need to have water and you need to have clouds and wind to be able to form life. And then the fuching, the fuching circle of life. Grasshopper eat grass and then um, birds eat grasshopper uh, and then so on and yeah, so forth, right? Yeah. I was amazed. How do the elders know about these stuff if we're just like nomadic people? So, for instance, if I were feeling ill in this tradition and I called you what kind of ceremony would there be to help me? It depends. If you're ill because of physical, then you need to go and check with your physicians, right? Mm -hmm. But if the physicians can't find anything wrong with you in terms of the physical part, then it have to do with the spiritual side. Then you come to a Ning and they, they can investigate what's going on with your soul. Do you have a lost soul or have your soul been captured by some demons, evil mm -hmm. spirit? And then we'll go from there. And maybe hard to describe, but how do you help someone walk back if they're feeling like their soul is lost or discouraged? Well, first of all, you need to find out what the what's the problem is, and then you start there. For example, Hmong people believe that, especially for the women, mm -hmm. you're not allowed to go near like rivers or lakes oh. because it's kind of like taboo because the rivers and the lakes spirit don't like people that are still on the period. So if you stay on your period and you went near river and lakes and you came back, you have like stomach pain or you start to get worse and worse, right? And you come and seek a shaman and then a shaman say, oh, okay, this is what's wrong with you. So what the shaman will do is go and talk to the soul of the lakes and say, she was here the other day or two weeks ago. And she, it's not like she purposely 
there's something wrong. So let's make a deal here. Let's pay the fine, right? Mm-hmm. It's like if you get a ticket, right? Then we'll pay you the fines and we'll let go of the soul that you're captured or will you let her soul be free and so she's not sick anymore. So do you feel like as a shaman, you learn to have a relationship with the natural world all around us? Yes, definitely. Traditionally, when you think about the Hmong cosmology, everything's tied to nature. So that's why when the question was, what's the name for Hmong religion? And most of the younger generation now say, oh, it's shamanism. No, it's not shamanism. To me, shamanism is not a religion. Mm-hmm. So shaman is just part of religion because we don't worship a shaman. But we worship the nature. We worship our ancestors' spirits. We worship natural resource. So that's why the Western scholar call Hmong religion animism because everything have a souls and spirits and life. So that's interesting you talk about the spirits of the ancestors and honoring those. What is the vision of the life after this life or spirits continuing? One thing that when I first came here, I, I, I learned about the LDS culture and I said, wow, it's we have so similar history in belief, right? Because we believe in family. We Mm -hmm. believe in having kids and we honor our ancestors and we've been forced out by the other people wherever we go, right? In the Western culture, everyone have a soul, but in the Hmong beliefs, a person have three souls. There's the genetic soul, I call it the genetic soul, which belong to your ancestor because they're the one who give you your physical features. And then there's the life and strength soul, which is your heartbeat. It's like the nature of life, how life form. And then there's the protection soul, which is like the moral ethics. So so when we talk about like in life, you need to have knowledge and you need to have money and you need to have power. So when I think about the three souls, it's similar to that. So the Hmong way of believing in the soul is to be able to reconnect with the nature, to be able to find home, to be able to reincarnation. You need to understand, you need to practice, you need to have good moral ethics, you need to know your identity, your ancestor, you need to know your history, you need to know your people, where you're coming from. At the end of the day, when you die, you don't become a hunger soul. You don't become a lost soul. You don't become a evil soul. Because you have connections? Yes. So reincarnations and prosperity, it's like the number one thing in the spiritual world. So, for example, if you marry and you are unable to have kids, that means that there's a lost soul there. It's a taboo. You might commit a crime or just something. You have a, a sense that it's not soft. That's why your lineage stopped there. Uh-huh. So you are not able to continue your clans, your lineage to the next generation. And then your ancestor will not be happy in this ancestor world because you're not able to continue to live on and to produce. So you're in this really interesting place where you have all of this traditional knowledge, but you're also studying what scholars know about anthropology and concepts of peoples. And for some people, they may, might say, I can keep my traditions or I can be a scholar. But you seem to be able to do both. Yes. What do you think about that? I'm proud of myself about that because <laughs> I, it's sometimes hard, I'll be honest here. Since I can remember till I was 11 years old before we came to the States, I was being trained by my masters and by my parents about the language, the cultures and the custom. But when I started school, everything that I know and been taught when I was young is different. Scientific proof, one plus one equal two, water molecules, and so on and so forth, right? There's the time in my life, I think when I was a junior in high school, that I went through struggles because I don't know how to balance it. I was like, okay, my spare helper teach me this. My master teach me this. My teacher teach me this, you know? <laughs> How do you balance that? So yes, I admit that it's not easy. But as I grow older and when I've done more study, I've done more research, and as I become an educator and I start to be the bridge that connects the spirit world to the scientific world. So I learn how to balance it out. I learn how even scientific, there's holes in there. So on the spiritual world, if you could understand that instead of denying the other one, let's combine them together. Two ways of looking for truth. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. So when you do that, you actually 
no more answer. You actually, like my people, they come seek help for me. If I find nothing wrong with their soul or spirit, I will recommend them to go in and see their doctor and take their medication on time because, you know. It's a physical yes, problem. Yes, yes. But I always tell them that even if the doctor fix you in the physical side, you still need fix on the spiritual side to be able to gain all your positive energy back. But if your physical side is fixed and your spiritual side not, is not fixed, there's no way you're going to be back to 90% of right. yourself. Right. But if your spiritual side is fixed but your physical side is not fixed, there's no way you, can, you will get better. I could do 10 ceremonies for you. I could do like 100 rituals for you. But if there's a stone in your kidney and you don't go remove that, you're not going to be better. It's going to cause more harm to the spiritual side. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. Spiritually speaking, what are the things that you do or the way you think of things or practices that help you feel connected and healthy with those three spiritual aspects you talked about? There's not a routine, a daily routine that I do, but I just believe and practice good moral ethics. It's just I'm a person that believes in giving back to the community, giving back to my wife and children. I try to be the best I can every day, and I believe that if you do that, doesn't matter on the physical side or spiritual side, you'll be in good hands. So I'm told that you travel quite a bit in the U.S. (laughs) to do ceremonies for people because there aren't many people who do what you do. So that tells me that even refugees here in the U.S. are holding on to that culture because it's important for them to call someone like you for their ceremonies. Yes. There's not a lot of people, but Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of people that they trust. Ah, gotcha. (laughs) So that's different, right? (laughs) Yeah, so... Right now, there's tons of shaman, there's tons of pra- cultural practitioners, but there's only a few that they trust. And they want to call and do their ceremony or their, perform their ritual for their deceased one or the loved ones. So yes, I do travel a lot, almost every weekend mm. to California or back to the Midwest for funeral rituals, wedding ceremonies and shamanic ceremony, yes. Are you able now or in the future, will you be able to find someone to pass this on to? For the culture piece, yes. I could, with the technology we have nowadays, I mean, everything we can record it and document it, right? On the culture, on the tradition, custom, culture, language piece. Mm-hmm. But on the special piece, it's, you have to be chosen. One of the topics that it's hot right now in the Hmong community is the up-and-coming new shaman. But... The newer shaman nowadays in the Hmong community have a totally different perspective from the traditional one. So for the traditional one, there will not be a new shaman in the family until that older shaman is passed or it's not able to perform ceremony anymore. So like for my lineage, there's only one, maximum two shaman per generations. So one of my grandpa's brother was a shaman. So my dad's generation, there's no shaman. And my generation, I'm like the only one. And then maybe it would skip a generation and then the spirit would chose one of my grandchildren in the next generation. And is that something that, that you or another shaman might observe about that child? Like people saw something in you. You yeah. could maybe see uh-huh. that they were called to that. If I'm lucky enough, I'll be able to observe. But if I'm not, then yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I live long enough to see that. But Yeah, yeah. yeah. When you take a people and the Hmong were separated from their origins in China, and you mentioned even written language and writings destroyed, somehow that still lasted. And now immigrants here who came to the U.S. are still keeping that alive like you are. I'm just impressed with the work it takes to keep a language and a culture alive. Do you see that still happening into future generations? Yes, but in a different way. What I mean by that is before Hmong had any connections or have any contact with the Western worlds, there 
language, their history, their knowledge and wisdom has been passing down orally from masters to student. So I'm so proud of our elders. They are able to incorporate our knowledge and our moral ethics through ceremony, through funeral rituals, through shamanic rituals, through wedding rituals. And if they don't incorporate into those ceremony and rituals, guess what? People are not going to see the importance of it and people are not going to learn it. But when you think about in life, when you think about what's important, you think about welcome a newborn, you think about a wedding, you think about, because Hmong don't really celebrate birthdays. Oh. <laughs> so you, you think about the New Year celebrations. You think uh. about, so Hmong only had one holiday, so that's the New Year. And then you think about shamanic ceremony. I'm so grateful and so proud of our elders, our philosophers, even though we don't have a writing system, even we can't document our knowledge and wisdom and history and culture into a book and make it into a Bible. But they are able to incorporate and keep those knowledge through the oral tradition and through the oral text within the ceremony, the rituals and the practice. And the biggest contradiction right now in the United States is the younger generation. They don't understand the importance of it. They come up with questions like, why we do funeral for so long? Why weddings for so long? Why a shamanic ceremony? These stuff are only practiced by people with no education, with no scientific background, right? Oh. Yeah. But like I always tell my students this. Yes, Hmong people may not have a physical country. Yes, we may not have a writing system until recently. But at the end of the day, um, we do this to preserve our language, our culture, our knowledge, and our history. And if you understand the spiritual side, understand the Hmong cosmology, they want a place to call home. And without these, there's no home. We will become lost. We may not have a physical country, but if we still have our tradition, the language, the, language, the culture, the knowledge, the wisdom, if we yeah. still have our oral texts, our oral Bibles, and these cultures and ceremony and rituals, guess what? Yes, when we are alive, we don't have a country, but when we die, our souls will still be able to return home to our homeland and to our ancestors. Is there anything that you wish that people here in the U.S. knew about on tradition and people that we don't understand? I think the biggest misconception here in the United States, even within the Hmong, with the younger generation, it's because Hmong tradition and practice deal with a lot of animal butchering. So I think what I want the younger generation and other people to know is we don't have a butcher place back in the old days. We, we raise our own animals. And it is taboo to just butcher an animal for no reason. So that's why we use spiritual ties. We use a ceremony to, it's like the life cycle. Even hunting, even if you go fishing and hunting, you need to pay the garden spirit of the land to ask them for that you're going to take certain amount of their food or, you know, their animals. So every ceremony and rituals that we use animal as a part of it, it's for animal offering to be spirit helper. Because in the spirit world, animals become human like us. They have a soul. You and me, are, we are not, and our soul are just borrow our body right now. This is not who we really are in the spirit world. So this is, the physical body are not really who we really are until we die and then our soul go back to the presence of reincarnation. This is so enlightening to just hear about a culture I have not known very much about. And I really respect there's so many hundreds, thousands of years of tradition built into everything that you have in your head and in your heart. I just want the younger generation, especially the non-Hmong and the Hmong, because um, the class that I taught or I've been teaching here at BYU, my students are mainly training missionaries. And I'm so proud of my students because when they come back and they took my class and they ask questions, it's not like they just come to my class and just say, okay, what is Hmong language? But they want to know the reason. They really want to know the cultures and the language. And I just feel sooner or later, LDS culture will be able to preserve a lot of Hmong language and cultures and be a part of the Hmong people. That was Yang Vang, the Hmong shaman here at BYU. And what really struck me was how he talked about the soul that we're cultivating here through our rituals, through kind of coming close to our ancestors, through learning about our heritage. That soul is what we take with us into the next life, right? They believe in 
incarnation in this tradition. And so he said, you know, you don't want to be a lost, hungry soul when you die. And I just thought, wow, like that just emphasizes how important and amazing this time we have on earth is to kind of cultivate the kind of soul that has substance for later on, you know, the kind of soul that's grounded in in our ancestors, in our upbringing, in the traditions that really bring us to life. Yeah, what an image, lust, hungry soul. Yes. yes. I, what I loved about both of these interviews is that they talk about migration. And in this interview, we have Yang Vang talking to us about how to create a home through language, through story, through tradition, through ritual, mm. Uh, and he mentions, like, you know, the birth of the newborn, the marriage, the wedding service. And I just keep thinking, yes, these are the things that bind us to the people around us, and they bind us to what came before. And it was a lovely reminder. I appreciated that from him. Yeah, and when he said the new generation is asking, uh, why are these weddings so long? Why are these funerals? I mean, like, days rather yeah. than we're going to take an hour. Right. Remember the, the dearly departed. But yes, that's all that cultural binding that happens in the passing on of traditions. That's, And I just felt like I wanted to see the movie made about a lost civilization. Right. When Yang talks about the Hmong once had a homeland, they had buildings and this complicated culture, and they're they had a writing system. We don't know what it is. It was all destroyed. Their books, their writings, whatever they were, they're coming up with one now so they can preserve the tradition in some way. But I am astounded how an oral tradition can carry over a great deal of time with the training of someone who starts at age four or five. Right. And just a beautiful tradition of finding connection and making me think a lot more about my connection to everything around me, and not just everyone around me. Many thanks to Dan Grudy and Veng Yang for speaking with us today. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team also includes Emma Engerbretson, Leah King, and Katarina Martinich. Our post-sound designer is Daniel Phillips. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts. That helps spread the word. We're on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod and on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, in good faith. <laughs>